0: No matter how long we survive an OUD death of a loved one, most of us still feel at different points in the grieving process, that second guessing, that memory loop of it was our fault. We could not save them. But for the many people in our community that I've communicated with, it's clear that fate could not be changed. We are not living in a Hollywood movie. The reality is that SUD, especially OUD, for most people, will lead to a premature death. Of course, death isn't a certainty, and some live out their lifespan. But the sad reality is, for most people, this is not the case. I've heard it in almost every conversation. Survivors experience this mindset of guilt. That exacts an enormous toll on us both psychologically and physically. But for the most part, the cliché time heals all wounds is true. The hard part is this process unfolds in a different time frame for each person. I say this not only from my perspective, but from the perspective of the hundreds of people I've contacted. Once this mindset takes hold one's life will change in positive ways. Now don't get me wrong, we will always love and miss our ghosts. The hole in our hearts will never ever be filled. Just know our loved ones would not want us to feel guilt and live a life of misery. They know we did all that we could to get them to lifelong remission and Most importantly, dear listeners, take heart. They know we loved them unconditionally as we know they loved us too. It's good to be here. Actually, it's good to be anywhere. This is H. Lee, a.k.a. Harris Insler, and you're listening to TGMBH, These Ghosts Must Be Heard, a podcast that shares stories and interviews with people who have suffered a loss due to OUD and to others who might be impacted by OUD, opioid use disease. Today, we have a powerhouse lady. Her name is Lisa Falbo. Lisa is a dynamic person. She's a certified personal trainer, and she's a co-founder of the SHARE Project. The purpose is to spread hope and awareness and remove the epidemic stigma. So, hi, Lisa. How are you doing today?
1: I am well, thank you. Thank you for having me today.
0: Okay, let's start off with some of your demographics, about where you live, about yourself, your family.
1: I am the only girl in a family of four. I have three younger brothers. I was born in Toledo, Ohio.
0: Holy Toledo.
1: Yes, Holy Toledo. Um, moved to Western North Carolina um, when I was about 12 years old and have been here ever since. I live um, in a right now in a very rural area. When I was raising my kids, I did live in a bigger city in Western North Carolina, Asheville, North Carolina. I am married. This is my second marriage, the father of my kids. We divorced when the kids were quite young, probably about seven and six. I raised the kids completely on my own all the way up until they moved out of the house and then that's when I remarried. Let's see, did I miss anything, I'm a personal trainer, I make people work out.
0: (laughs) I can see the energy you have.
1: (laughs) Yes, yes, which is not everybody's favorite thing to do, but that's kind of my goal as a personal trainer. I try to make it fun and that's if a person can like exercise, that's my goal.
0: And your lost loved one's name?
1: My lost loved one is Sam, Sam Johnston. He passed when he was 27. I have another son, his name is Troy. He was younger, about a year and a half younger. And Troy is still with us, struggling, but still with us.
0: Okay, could you tell us a little bit about Sam, please?
1: Well, Sam was, he was a firstborn. You know, a lot of those traits seem to carry with firstborns, it seems like. You know, he was sensitive, creative, private. Took him a good while to warm up to people. You know, he he would stand on the outskirts, survey things a little bit. It took him a little while to warm up to people. But then when he did and when he had friends, he was loyal. He cared about the underdog. Very early on, it was obvious he had a love for art, always drawing. I homeschooled. Now, I have caught that in several people's backgrounds. So that's an interesting thing. So anyway, I did homeschool a good many years until they went into high school, basically. In those homeschooling years, I saw the creativity come out a lot. He loved to be doodling and drawing pictures while he was listening to the lesson of the day. He liked uh, spray painting, uh, probably not on objects he should spray paint on. (laughs) Got in trouble for that a few times in his past but was very good at it you know it's an art those people right. that are in that world would say that is totally an art he ended up fine-tuning that skill Um, he started doing some woodworking his dad had a woodworking business ended up teaching himself the art of knife making for some reason picked up on the love of metals and taught himself i mean he totally taught himself youtube videos learned everything he could on different types of metal and all the ins and outs and long story short he ended up being a world renowned knife maker wow. self-taught his they're you know customized that's a whole world i knew nothing about um until he got into the business you know we're not talking about the ones you see in the flea markets they are custom made he he always said I can't afford my knives. (laughs) They would sell for thousands of dollars.
0: That's insane.
1: He made a name for himself in that world. Meanwhile, that's when his addiction began. He was a teenager. He was young when his experimenting began. But, you know, in the process of that, it shows the ups and downs that addiction and recovery and addiction and recovery and relapse and recovery takes. He still managed to fine-tune those skills
0: and become what he was. You, know? you mentioned that you homeschooled. You've heard from a lot of people who've done that. See, I don't know if we can say anything about that until, who knows, maybe they could do a study about that. Yeah. Three or four out of six or seven of the interviews that I've done maybe more uh, homeschooled. I mean, you cannot draw a conclusion from anecdotal information. And a lot of people now in this day of information, they will just say, oh, yeah, homeschooling is, is one of the You can't.
1: No, no, you certainly can't. It it's an interesting thought. And I, and I think about that at times because, you know, one of my main goals in homeschooling was to give them a good foundation in hopes that when they entered the real world, <laughs> they would have that foundation and know how to forge forward. And I look back on that and wonder if I did the right You, you, you can't look backwards. I, I know, sweet. I know you can't, but you know, you do You do kind of wonder about that myself. I do
0: wonder. You always come back with those, I call them the runaround loops. If yes. I had done this, I had done, done that. It's now 15 years since Zach died. From time to time, I get that. And then I just stop myself.
1: Yeah, it's not wise. I think one of the biggest things that I've learned throughout this, and, and what I tell other moms that I talk with, is that you're only responsible for what you know now. I didn't know these things. You know, I can say all this, the homeschooling, and, the you know, I can only say it from the perspective of what I know now. I didn't know it then. And and I got to tell myself that
0: over and over. <laughs> So, would you say his future goal was
1: knife making? I do. I think he wanted to keep doing He loved it. He loved creating. He loved the process. I think he would have kept at it.
0: Did he make some good lasting relationships in high school?
1: No, I would say he did not make good lasting relationships in high school. They were all not good. (laughs) Unfortunately, yes, that the friendships, you know, they they were acquaintances outside of
0: graduating high
1: school. He still Mm -hmm. knew them. You know, honestly, I would say they were probably pretty all bad.
0: What would make Sam laugh?
1: You know, can I be honest with you? He didn't laugh a lot. He didn't laugh a lot. It's like he tried to hold it in oftentimes. His friends, his friends made him out. You gotta remember, you're asking his mom. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I mean, it is a little bit different. You know, he would he would laugh with friends. Honestly, I didn't see him laugh a ton.
0: What's your favorite memory about Sam?
1: Okay, this is a good one. This is a good one and this carries over still. We were, he was in his early preteen years. He, ha- he was not driving yet because I had to go pick him up from a friend's house. So we were in the car it was later at night. It was dark and we were coming home again. Like I said, we lived in the country, you know, so we're on the back roads and we pulled our driveway kind of went downhill just a little bit. We rounded the corner to go down the driveway and there was this baby owl in the middle of the driveway. Mm-hmm. And we both just stopped. Headlights are shining on this baby owl and I think that probably is a favorite memory because it influenced him. He thought about it the rest of his short life. Really? Yes, because owls meant something to him. He was a thinker, you know, he would process things in his head. I, yeah. I, I don't want to use the word from a spiritual standpoint. He would analyze things. And so, you know, he analyzed that owl, oh, well, you know, the owl was a sign of what? You know, but I think that was probably one of one of the better memories. Of course, lots is when when they're kids.
0: I took I don't know how how many hours of camcorder stuff on my son, my family, my son. Okay, so I think I have a picture of Sam. When did you think, or when did you know that he first had interaction with some substances?
1: Oh boy, you know I think about this all the time. I think. So much of those years, I feel as though I turned a blind eye. Looking back on it, of course, we're talking about the young only responsible for what you know now. <laughs> it wasn't purposeful, but yet, you know, being a single mom and being busy, and I didn't want to, to delve into it a little deeper, if that makes sense. It had to have been from about 14 to 15. I, there's so much I don't know. We did not talk about it you know, only in the coming out, if you will, of I've got a problem is, did we start talking about it? I feel as though it started with just smoking pot. We're in the mountains of Western North Carolina. It's an okay thing to do. And then it, you know, it it did go into pills. I remember finding pills at one point in his bedroom. And I remember him pitching a huge fit to get those pills back because I took them. So see there, there is another thing where I thought, okay, But even then, I knew so little about addiction. I knew nothing, let's admit it. I knew nothing about addiction.
0: You're not the only one. Yeah. You just reminded me. My son was into music, he had a band. And I think back to when I was his age. I didn't, it's weird because I didn't do anything in high school. I was a jock, I was playing basketball, baseball. Zach also, you know, he he at one point was in this group and with a sign to it, meaning no drugs. All the way through high school, he was okay. And then I think when he went to college, I think we knew that's when he started smoking pot. And I said, you know, you think, okay, well, we did it. We're okay. We knew Diddley Squad. I had no clue. We're all in this. Most of us were in the same boat. Hopefully now, you know, more people are not in that boat. Yes. And I think what you do, what I do, what other groups do, hopefully it sinks in. Drugs affect Sam? Well, his personality,
1: he became very defensive, very argumentative, oftentimes. Oh, Mercy, you know, in the beginning, and when we discovered that he had a serious problem, actually was proactive on his own. I didn't know anything about treatment centers.
0: Hey, um, I uh, want to let you know that I talked to my probation officer and everything with her. Uh, Everything's fine. Um, I got everything set up. I can tell you more about it later. So don't call her, don't try and clarify any contradictions or anything. We'll go over all that when you get back.
1: He found a methadone clinic. I knew nothing about that. He found it, Uh, he told me this is what he needed to do. This is where he needed to be, what time he needed to be. You know, that was his first time treatment and that worked for a very long time. He would have been, he was still in high school.
0: Wow, that's insane because he knew enough to do all this. I, I, this is the first time I've heard of something like that.
1: I knew nothing. He was a senior. You know, he must have through friends. I, I Like I said, I, I knew nothing. Um, he must have found out that medicated assisted treatment, which again, I knew nothing about, was a, you know, and, and who knows? Maybe he had an ulterior motive. I'd like to think not because it certainly did the trick. He did that for years and he was okay. You know, that's a was a huge chapter in his life from, let's say, 18 years to 25.
0: Wow. So that one time he went, did what he had to do, and he was okay.
1: He did the methadone treatment. You know, that's a whole thing. You know, mm-hmm. you got to go every day for a certain amount of time, and you can get your take home. So, you know, all that kind of stuff. It was when he decided that he wanted to go off methadone is when he relapsed. So there was a good many years in there. You know, I had, what, three, four years of active addiction where I didn't know what was going on. He was ugly all the time. He was leaving all the time. He was bringing friends in, you know, and coming in late. And I just attributed it to high school. And, you know, then the methadone and the medicated assisted treatment for many years and he was okay. And then he relapsed. So I had him for a good many years, you know, which makes the whole thing a little bit harder.
0: Of course. You
1: know? And then when he relapsed, of course, he relapsed
0: hard, very hard. How did this affect you and your family?
1: You know, Harris, I kept a lot of it to myself. I, I, I didn't let my family know a lot of what was going on. They never knew about the beginning when he was in, the, in the high school and when he was struggling. His dad knew and I knew. And that was it. And his brother we didn't tell anybody. That is that whole stigma thing. As the time progressed, and as he got to that time of relapse, I did bring my dad in and told him what was going on, but still just sugarcoating the whole thing. You know, my dad knew nothing, you know, and I didn't talk to anybody about it. And and so how did it affect me? Uh, yeah. Internally. Exactly. Exactly. Internally and health wise, you know, I mean, that's not even something that I I share with people, but health wise, I struggled
0: health wise paid
1: the price for that suffered in silence. That's what what we tell other moms in our group, you know, we we suffer in silence, and we shouldn't do that,
0: right. And that it eats away at us. And the effects are long term. And I can attest to that. Yeah. So how did things get worse? Or when or how
1: best I can tell is he met a girl. (laughs)
0: It's always a girl.
1: He met a girl and she was, you know, bad news, if you will. And he was already at this point. Okay, so now this is where it gets a little gray. I don't know if the reason he wanted to go off the methadone was because he had intentions on doing drugs again, or if as he was coming off the methadone, the cravings took over. My guess is it's probably a little bit of both. You know, when he was in a very low dose of methadone, trying to cut it out completely, it's like, how could you plan it? That's when the girl showed up. I mean, how do you plan something like that? And that—that that was it. From that point on, he fell hard, man. I mean, he was into, you know, heroin was his drug of choice after the pills. Um, I do believe meth came into the picture there at some point as well. Already, as as I attested, um, you know, a little bit ago, he already had a thriving business. It started affecting the business. You know, the, the knives were not getting put out. People were paying money for these knives and they weren't getting their product because he was using it on drugs. I was funneling a little bit of money because he didn't have this and that, so I had a, the PayPal account and you know, it was not a good time.
0: Was the girl that he met was she involved too?
1: Very. From what I can tell, her mom was a dealer.
0: Oh, jeez.
1: Well, I shouldn't say from what I can tell. I know. So there was plenty of access you know, the girl was there all the time influencing him. You know, and you know how it is. It's the story.
0: And, and you know? it doesn't take much to influence him, right? Because he needed the drug. Exactly. He was craving
1: the drug. So it was the perfect storm, unfortunately. Yeah. So he got in trouble with the law. He was traveling. He'd been at a knife show. He was out in Idaho. Got pulled with a large amount of meth. Ooh. And so, and that was the beginning spiral right there. If you thought the nightmare couldn't get any worse, it could it, it got a lot worse.
0: How, how did you find out that he died?
1: Picking up with the story of Idaho, he ended up having to do jail time and he was there for nine months. They actually have a really great program in the Idaho state prisons. Um, I know (laughs) that is, um, they call it a rider program. It's actually the last I checked, it was having a hard time with funding. As you can imagine, those kind of things always struggle with funding. He went through that program, which was same as what would be in a treatment facility. If you went away to a treatment facility for a year, It was basically the same, had meetings, had paperwork to fill out, what caught, you know, all the, all those kind of things. So anyway, when he was released to come back to North Carolina, he had to have somebody on the North Carolina side that he could go into custody of because he was on parole. This was a pretty big stint. This wasn't probation. This was parole. I was able to convince my husband to uh, let him come and stay with us. We wanted it to be short term. He wanted it to be short term. Where we live was, it wasn't near where his shop could be and where his business was, you know, so it was short term. He got out, um, best I can remember, about July 16th of 2019. He came, he was here at our house for about a week and a half. We had, you know, some chores and things like that for him to do to stay busy. He was very on edge, as you can imagine. This was not an ideal set of circumstances for him at all. He was very defeated, Harris. He felt as though he would never be able to get his business back. He felt as though he would never be able to earn the trust of those guys again. He felt as though it was an insurmountable set of odds for him as many people do when they are released from from jail. I might add, this was not just Sam. Anyway, you know, he'd been with us about a week and a half. He wanted to go spend some time with his dad who lived about 45 minutes away. And so we arranged that for him to go ahead. His dad, I was gonna drop him off at his dad's house. He was gonna stay there for a weekend, do some things with his dad and then come back to us. In that amount of time, that was a weekend, he spent one day with his dad and then was going to go, told his dad he was going to go spend some time with his buddy. Sam went missing that night for three nights he was missing. And we knew, we knew something was up. He, you know, no matter what, even if it was a short clip dancer or a leave me alone, he would respond to text. and he wasn't responding. His dad and I knew something. We had a bad feeling something was up we contacted the friend the friend didn't know anything his dad has a little more details of the story i won't go into those those details but long story short and and this this part harris is something that most people don't know so i'm i'm (laughs) i'm kind of breaking it here if you will i'm being vocal with it and saying it out loud he was found under a bridge he had overdosed under a bridge three days before we found his body
0: nobody saw him, nobody?
1: No, somebody was with him. Somebody was with him when we know who it was and you know, that's a whole story in itself in okay. the con- confrontation of that and how we knew where he was because we had to confront her to, to find out where she was. And, and no, she left him. She left him there to die.
0: Hi. Well, I guess uh, this person was sick herself. She was, yep. Do you remember the last time you guys spoke, what you said?
1: Yeah, it was in the car when I was taking him to to see his dad. We had about a 45-minute ride, and he was so agitated. You know, he was so, and who knows? I mean, he might have been, you know, knowing he was going to go get drugs, and he was impatient, and, you know, likely, yes, that had a lot to do with it. His situation warranted that. And I, I tried, I tried to tell him he didn't know what I knew. About his followers, his knife making followers, I had been in touch with some of them and I knew some of them had dealt with addiction themselves and they were willing to give him another go and you know, I tried to let him know that yes, it was going to be hard, but he could do it. And I felt as though he could, it would be a slow go and that we were here for him and you would have to, you know, slowly win them back, but they were not going to close the door on you. And so thankfully, thankfully it was a good conversation at the end. You know, the conversation started not so good, (laughs) but it did end up being better.
0: Did you ever like show him how your emotions were, or you just had to keep your cool and nothing's wrong. Everything's okay. You're going to go back. You're going to get your business back. and
1: Yeah. Yeah. I, and my friends would attest to this. I'm not an emotional person. <laughs> <laughs> it's a blessing and a curse. You know, I, I can compartmentalize very well, but yet I can compartmentalize very well. So at times when I probably should be a little more emotional, I'm not emotional at all. He knew that I believed in him and he knew that I loved him. I have no doubt about that at all. Above his dad, he knew that I was the one that was always there and in his corner. But as far as being emotional with him and crying and you know, saying, what are you doing? What are you, do? I, I never did any of that. Was that wrong? I don't know. No,
0: there's no right or wrong. Please don't even think that. If you could say anything now to Sam, what would you say? You should have given me a heads up on that. I told you it wasn't going to be easy. <laughs> Oh, Mercy.
1: I don't know. I miss you. If I only had a chance to say one thing, I sure wouldn't say, why, why, why? <laughs> no. What, what could you have been? You know, what potential is lost and gone? But would I ever say that to him? No, I don't think I could say that to him. I miss you. Okay,
0: that's a good answer. So let's just say, how did stigma, opioid stigma, affect you and Sam if it did at all? for me, I just didn't
1: talk about it. I mean, it was just not something you talked about. I mean, how do you, how do you say, you know, when somebody says, how are your kids? How do you say Sam's using heroin? You know, (laughs) how do you say that? You, You just don't say that. So, you know, or he's struggling. I, you know, I just always glossed it over and changed the subject. So for me, I, I mean, it kept me from talking about it and it kept me from reaching out to others, you know, and talking about the whole hindsight thing and what, you know, now, you know, So many others were going through what I was going through and shame on me for not saying something, you know, because it maybe would have made it a little bit easier, you know, as far as how it affected Sam, that's a hard one. For so long of his young adult life, he really wouldn't have even talked about it with people because he was in, you know, on medicated on the methadone and he would have been okay you know, it was an issue that I knew about because he always had to think about making sure he had his proper dosage if he was going to travel and, you know, all the legalities of that kind of thing.
0: Yeah, it sounds to me, I don't think he bought into the stigma. I mean, he was a guy uh-huh. who took care of himself, got his own therapy. I mean, I don't yep. think that applied to him.
1: I agree. I've never really thought about it that way, but I agree. I don't think it did.
0: When Sam passed away, did you tell people what happened?
1: No short answer long answer some some people I did I had been even in my training world in fact my my the co-founder of the share project she lost a son I met her before Sam passed so and her son had already passed so we'd already talked a little bit so she was somebody I felt I could talk to there was just one or two others in there that I knew something was going on with their child that I felt I could be a little more open with, but you know, no, I, I didn't. And honestly, I, I imagine that there was probably 50% of the people that came to his celebration of life. Didn't know how he died.
0: Same here. Yep.
1: Yep. Didn't know so, how he died. His friends would have, the friends that came would have known that he had some struggles there, you know. They knew and, and were open about it and they're speaking with me. But yeah, uh, my friends, nope, they didn't know. They speculated and probably speculated right.
0: <laughs> I, yeah, I think I just said he he was sick. I realize now, of course, he was. He was, yeah. <laughs> um, without the stigma, do you think anything might have changed?
1: For me, yeah. I don't know that it would have changed the outcome. I would have had some support. I, and, and who knows? I mean, with that support, maybe it would have changed the outcome. I don't know. I, I, I can't even speculate on that part, I guess. Being that I kept it so to myself for so many
0: years. It's weird because I have a question that says if Sam had access to certain resources, do you think he would still be here today? And the answer is no, because he went. You know, it's the first time I've heard that kind of this story. I haven't heard that from anybody yet.
1: Yeah, I, I, you know, I got to think that if it wasn't his first time getting high after prison, I'd like to think that it was. And that's why he overdosed. You know, I would like to think that.
0: It could be. It could be uh, because sometimes they think the same yeah. dosage they used to take was fine.
1: Absolutely. And again, this is all speculation. You just never know. But you know, I, now I know how easy it is to get drugs in prison. I don't know. But but one way or another, he took a fatal dose.
0: I guess before Sam got involved, you didn't know anything about OUD stigma or anything like that, right? Nothing. And here we are in 2021, in the present day, why do you think people still uphold this stigma?
1: They aren't educated. Bingo. Uh, They believe the stereotypes. There's people that still hang on to that because of the lack of education. I think that's the root.
0: It's also, it's not gonna happen to me. Isn't that a false statement? And that's a really potentially destructive way to think. And that's why we are doing this. What would you tell people who either consciously or subconsciously hold on to this thing? The
1: the thing about it is, is I have people in my life like this. Close people (laughs) in my life like this, you know? And what do I tell them? I mean, it's all the cliche things, you know, don't think it can't happen to you. Educate yourself. But it doesn't, I haven't gotten real far
0: in that. I think you got it. You got to tell them you really have to learn about this. You may not think it's out of the question. You don't, They don't even know what drugs are around their area.
1: If you haven't been affected by it yet, you're going to be affected by it. And then your perspective is going to change.
0: They really should know because that's why we're at this state now. But at least it's coming out behind the curtain so that's 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 the good thing you know i don't know how we end this stigma i mean i think the only way is just to keep banging the drum right well and the more people
1: talk about it 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 you do hear it you know i mean of course now i'm in the world where i'm talking about it so it you know it seems like as as though we are somewhat making a dent in that realm but then you know you see a news story and you read the comments on a news story and it's like oh we've got nowhere <laughs> You know, but yet I I got to think that just talking about it, you know, I mean, you can, you can look at other significant things in, in the past, gay marriage, social issues, AIDS that have come along in the past several decades. You know, when they first started being talked about, they were still very taboo. They had stigma surrounding them. Same idea. The more it was talked about and the more people saw it and the more, you know, slowly but surely you chip away at some of the stereotypes and some of that stigma. Yes, there is still, you know, you still have people that hold to this belief and that belief and, but yet we have gained some ground in those. And, and, and you got to think that because now we are talking about it so much and you know, it's not just you and I, there are other groups out there coming, I mean, all over blooming from other moms and dads that have gone through it or starting their own support groups and their own Facebook pages and their own projects. And, you know, you got to think that that slowly, but surely we can saturate it enough that the, at least the language can change around and, and people don't look at it as such a shameful subject
0: and the language is changing it is i see it all around if you were to tell parents of people who might be worried about this issue what warning signs should should they look for
1: i would say personality changes for one thing Uh, i think that for me that was the the biggest flag was you know irritation when they might not be irritated impatience secretive staying to themselves Those kinds of, those things, you know, you know your child best. You know when those things change. I would say don't just blow it off. as puberty.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Right. It's like, oh, kids go through things like this. No. You know, in your own little experience, maybe, but listen to people.
1: And and I, I would say be willing to... Oh boy, I don't want to say, I don't want to say be willing to think the worst, but yet be willing to open your mind that it is a possibility.
0: Right. And what do you got to lose? Nothing. You might save.
1: Yeah, absolutely.
0: In fact, someone, one other person I interviewed said, having community is important because if you belong, this kid belongs to something bigger than himself or herself, that might help them. Know who your son, daughter is hanging out with. Listen to other people in your community who might know, and you don't, wouldn't know that they, they knew stuff like this, but always, and that's, that's a big thing.
1: And, and absolutely. And boy, that speaks to a red flag that came on my radar back when my son was, he, he liked skateboarding. That was a sport. I was glad he was into skateboarding. You know, I never would have thought about there being anything nefarious underneath. I had a, an adult friend of mine He was a little bit younger, cautioned me. He came up to me and he said, I just want to caution you that there's a whole, I I don't remember his exact words, but he said there's an undercurrent and an underworld behind skateboarding.
0: There's a drug culture.
1: And that's what he said in so many words. And I said, not my child. Mm -hmm. You know, how many times do we say, not my child? A lot. (laughs) So, you know, and and there again, like I said, be willing to not say, not my
0: child. (laughs) So a couple of things you said, how the prison system, at least nowadays, they were in prison, they were getting help, like the best care you could ever get. The setup now in this country for dealing with this epidemic is rooted in the war on drugs way back. So part of it is the corruption, the graft, the lobbying, the other thing is the federal government's stance on their schedule of drugs. What do you know about heroin, marijuana, methadone are classified as? Do you have any idea about that?
1: Not sure I know exactly what you're talking about. Okay, the
0: federal government has these laws, sorry, they have marijuana, believe it or not, heroin, meth, they're all I think a schedule one. Yep. The problem with that, by law, they cannot allow federal funds to universities, research, all the people who might be able to help. They can't get federal funds. And why? Well, the goal goes back to money. Everything in this country is money. It's, it is. It's a shame. It's, a lot of it is corrupt.
1: Well, and I got to tell you, Harris, we're doing something wrong. We could, we could go, we, you know, we could go on for hours probably on this subject. You know, I mean, the war on drugs, is it working? You know, you've got the whole, you know, the countries that have tried other things and, you know, the safe and and harm reduction and we're doing something wrong because people are dying big time. The numbers are only going up. So we are doing something wrong,
0: especially with the pandemic,
1: Especially with the pandemic, yes. That has just escalated things, you know? Uh, And you know, and we could probably speculate on, well, and accurately talk about the things that are being done wrong. How
0: do you change it? I don't know. A lot of people have to put pressure. So I found out about Portuguese drug laws. They decriminalized drugs in 1990, late 90s, for small amounts, but not for drug traffickers. And what happened since then, their drug problem got smaller and smaller and smaller. They did MAT before we even dreamt about it. 75% of OUD users received MAT. This was in 2008, but this is in Portugal. Yep. Overdoses fell. And so did HIV infections because yep. they gave them clean yep. needles.
1: Safe injection sites, yep.
0: Cost effective analysis showed you would save so much money. I don't wanna give you numbers, but if you have a chance, look up the Portugal drug laws. ID. Oh yeah,
1: okay. I am familiar with that. I'm, I'm familiar with some of the things that are being done, even in Canada, even as close as yes. in Canada, yeah. some things that are being done. And I look at these and I think, oh my word, it, it seems like a no brainer. <sighs> But I cannot, I can I just gotta tell you, Harris, I can't ever see anything like that being done here. It started. It's look, I hope. Look
0: at, <laughs> Oregon. Look at Oregon, right? Um, it's not perfect. The yeah. problem with most of these things for this country is there are not enough treatment centers. Yes. And that's where the federal government has to step in.
1: I think another Big obstacle is the lack of education, you know, the pushback that you would get from, you know, even, even this is just a small thing. Even when I first found out about harm reduction in our area, in our local area, and I'm thinking, why in the world would you give somebody needles? Why would you do that? But I came around very quickly on that myself, but that's because I got a history with it. But you know, put that and multiply that times. You know, we're talking in the Haywood County in North Carolina. we you know, the pushback from mainstream would be so strong, I would think, because of the lack of education again. They think, why would we why would we help them? Why would we give them this? Why would we do that? That doesn't make any sense. Because they're sick. And like I say, addiction is treatable, but not if you're dead. That's... I mean, it, it's pretty, it's pretty straightforward right there.
0: I mean, I, my thing I've discussed this with people on the interviews, I said, if you could save a life, would you let your son have heroin and under circum circumstances where he's monitored, where he has to get treatment also. And I say, hell yeah, the whole thing is to save a life. Maybe they can find some wonder drug or some wonder treatment that okay. OUD costs about $23 billion a year for this country. And when you talk about healthcare, it's $55 billion. I mean, yes, some of these these centers are are horrible. They just rip you off. And I've had stories like that. So
1: Oh, yeah, yeah. It's just well, yeah, the whole patient brokering
0: thing. I mean, that's a real thing. You know, that's why I like um, Shatterproof. Oh, yeah. Because they have that Atlas. Gives you where do you live, you put it in the... They vet it for you. Yes, Yes. it's just so great. So I think between the two of us, we we could solve this. We just need a few billion dollars, that's all. That's right. (laughs) And and the savings for all these things that they're trying would be immense. It would pay for itself and give us more money for treatments and things like that.
1: We got to be willing to think out of the box, you know, and I am thankful, you know, I mentioned a a few minutes ago about all the different organizations and, you know, nonprofits and moms and that, that are getting involved and that can only be beneficial as long as they, you know, they, they are active in their communities as well. You know, I, Michelle and I of, of the share project, we both try to be, we're a part of other Consortiums. We're a part of regional things, you know, in laws. And do we get behind this law and the, the X waiver and the M eight? You know, try to be involved in things like that as well because we do come at it from a different place. Of course, uh, we come at it with a little more education as well as experience, lived experience. You know, is does this make sense or does this make sense or you yeah. know?
0: Just one more little fact. They said that in counties that are doing stuff like this. Their deaths are down. Their incarcerations are down. I mean, it's just, look at the numbers, please, people. That's all.
1: We just need a little more time, a little yeah. more time to make a difference, yeah.
0: I want you to leave the listeners with your, whatever statement you'd like to make.
1: Um, well, I made some pretty good points there, I think, as far as, you know, only responsible for what you know now. Um, I think, you know, that one I tell myself every day. I. You know, most of the moms and friends that I deal with that have children that are either still struggling or have passed, probably even more so that have passed. They they always ask themselves, what did I do wrong? What, you know, they, they, we, we all have regrets, you know. I, you know, I think that probably is a big one as far as you're only responsible for what you know now. You can't look at it from the lens of now, Your your position now. There is hope. There is hope the tough love thing, you know, that, that we, we, you and I grew up on is not the same as it was then, (laughs) you know, I mean, you have to keep loving your child and you have to try to educate yourself so you can help them. You know, there is hope. There is hope for recovery. People recover every day. People are beating this disease of addiction every day, one day at a time, but you got to they got to have a person. They got to have a person that's in their corner. And that person may be you, mom. That person may be you, dad. Um, They got, they got to have a person within reason. You know, there's boundaries. I'm not talking about, you know, enabling. We're not even talking about that, but you know, they got to know that somebody continues to love them through the disease till they make it on the other side.
0: Thanks for listening. We appreciate it very much. To stay tuned with These Ghosts Must Be Heard, follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at TheseGhostsPod. And take a look at our website, VoicesFromTheOpioidCrisis.com, to hear more stories and share your own if you'd like. Our podcast is now streaming on Spotify, Amazon, Apple Music, and coming to more soon. So there's plenty of ways to hear these ghosts. And as Zach used to say... Peace out.